This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight we're talking to Dr. Helen Redmond and Professor Peter Sainsbury. They've come over to my place on a cold, rainy night because I had a cold and I really wanted them to help me unravel the main points of the new Lancet report on climate and health. There was one published in 2009 and this one gives us some hope that there are huge health opportunities in adapting uh, to climate change, you know, preventing the worst of heat waves, for example, but not just adapting, stopping climate change in its tracks, slowing it down, carbon mitigation in other words. There are huge benefits to our health of taking this action. And also on the psychological level, taking action helps you stop feeling helpless. But both of these doctors came to my place and I'm very sorry that the dog behaved badly. He barked all through the interviews and I just can't just scrap them. I listened and I can hear him barking and scratching at the door all the way through. I let him into the room with us, but every time we made strong voices, he barked again. So really, excuses from Mojo. The main thrust of the report is that there are health opportunities, but we have to take it very seriously how urgent the problem of climate change is. Things like malaria and dengue fever are on the move. Uh, heat waves are increasingly causing great damage to civilian populations, vulnerable people, as we've just seen this year in Pakistan and India. Just absolutely hundreds of people being taken to overcrowded emergency departments, hardly people being are hardly able to cope. They had to increase the capacity of their morgue in um, Pakistan, I saw on TV, with uh, refrigerated vans just held outside the hospital because of so many people dying quite suddenly um, during the heat waves. So we have to be prepared for this and I think the whole society would love to be invited to get on board to take sensible measures to help and people in the health profession who haven't been accustomed maybe to public speaking haven't done anything more than just do their job. You know that takes up a full lifetime doesn't it to do your job but some of them because they are such trusted messengers can be given new skills or encouraged to speak up in terms of what is needed at the government level, say the planning level, to take climate change seriously because of the impact on our health and on the health budget. In fact, climate change could undo all the advances that we've made over the last 50 years, and we don't want that. So here is Professor Peter Sainsbury and Dr Helen Redmond talking about the Lancet report on climate change and health. I I think I'd like to begin by saying that um, it's unfortunately true that we probably don't recognise well enough the immense health implications of climate change. It's been scooting under the radar And I think many people really don't see a link between climate change and the effects that it's going to have on people's health. Um, And so there's been a a fairly concerted effort, I think, over the last year or two to try and raise the profile of the health implications of climate change um, and, and try to get the health professions, the health bodies, internationally and nationally more active in all of that, so that the media, the public the politicians are really aware of of the health implications of climate change. One, because they're very profound um, and serious, very threatening, 
but secondly, because they're a great motivating issue for people. It can sometimes seem a bit distant, can't it, about talking about what things are going to be like in 2070 or talking about what things are like in Bangladesh or a low-lying Pacific island. But the health implications are already being felt all over the world, including in Australia. Deaths are occurring. Health is being damaged. Um, and that can be a very motivating factor for people to get interested and start being active. Yes, well, I like the Lancet's idea of a countdown. They said um, every year they would like health professionals to monitor climate action that is actually happening in terms of health outcomes. And I thought, and I imagined this would be something like a reduction in respiratory disease if a, a coal mine was shut down. We're all waiting for the bulgar case mm. to resolve. And if that closed down, you could say, look, there's a net benefit predictable to the um, respiratory health of the people there. Or um, perhaps uh, in an island place, they've put in a mangrove forest and that would be protective mm. of the, that country from uh, storm damage. So how do you think this might grab politicians to have the idea that health professionals are monitoring progress? Well, I think it's a strong uh, indication that health is really trying to, uh, the health professions, that is, trying to make this issue uh, front page news. Now, I think it's important to recognise that the Lancet Commission, which has just produced this report, isn't trying to uh, to take over the work that the United Nations uh uh, climate change uh, bodies are, are uh, doing or any work that any of the other international organizations are doing but what they are trying to do is very much as you said focus on the health implications of climate change but also focus on what we need to do as well that has a direct influence on health so for instance you then mentioned about monitoring how we're moving towards um, getting rid of our dependence on fossil fuels and moving, moving to renewable energy sources, um, how we are changing land uses in ways that will help us combat climate change. Um, so I think getting the health professionals and health bodies, not just individuals, but the actual health organisations worldwide, getting them more involved at that level, nationally and internationally, does send a very strong message. So I think it's a, a very good suggestion that, that um, um, the countdown to 2030, I think they call it, don't they, um, that that be established and provide that regular monitoring mechanism. Yeah. Well, look, at the moment, emissions are still rising mm. despite all our efforts. It is really grim. And I worry that governments might want a quick fix and uh, go down for cool, cooling mm. the planet without studying or having any idea of the side effects. It's already experimental what we're doing with the planet anyway. And the Lancet said this is like the call for, you know, during the Ebola epidemic, people were calling for a wonder drug that would be a mm. quick fix. And everyone was wanting this quick fix. But uh, the Lancet said, well, it was obvious they needed to have world standard hygiene and, and, and hospital services that they probably can't afford. But that was, you know, prevention was needed mm. and we didn't need a quick fix for Ebola. But similarly... We're now wanting a quick fix or something to stop climate change, but what we need to do is start the hard work of cleaning out the carbon pollution. Mm. Um, where should we start? Well, I think um, many, uh, all your listeners probably are aware of the, the conference the, of the parties that's coming up in, in Paris in December. And I think the difference between this uh, meeting and the one that so many were disappointed by in Copenhagen is that I think there is a recognition with this meeting that it isn't simply about the few days in Paris in December. It is about establishing uh, targets and mechanisms to achieve those targets between now and 2030 and monitoring them and continually adjusting them. That it isn't a one-off hit that, that Paris is going to solve the problems, but Paris is about establishing a system, systems, worldwide and nationally, that's actually going to make that transition to a zero-carbon economy. So I agree with you entirely, this won't be achieved overnight, even though many of us are horrified at uh, expansion of coal mining in Australia. Those of us who are horrified still recognise that we're not going to be able to close down all the coal mines next week. This is a project that's going to take one, two, 
hopefully not three, decades. Um, so it is a long-term process, undoubtedly. There's no quick fix. Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 and become an organisational subscriber. Show, Show your, your love, love 3CR. 3CR. I I asked Dr Helen Redmond, who is with Doctors for the Environment Australia, about how climate change will undo the gains made in global health over the last years. I asked her for examples and we started with malaria. For example, malaria um, is now affecting communities that have not previously been exposed and so they have no immunity uh, to the disease and are getting uh, sick from it in a way that other communities who are used to it do not. Another example is dengue fever in Australia. It's a febrile illness, can be quite serious, and it's actually moving south into more southern parts of Queensland and possibly even um, New South Wales. So other ways will be to do with food and water shortages and undernutrition leading to forced migration, mass migration of populations and inevitably conflict, and also infrastructure damage. So quality housing and, and good, good things that have been set up can be um, severely damaged in extreme weather events and so on. And I think not as much talked about are mental health impacts, mm-hmm. um, which will be profound on communities suffering um, climate impacts. I'm also thinking of hospitals. I think Cairns Hospital, or maybe it was Brisbane Hospital, was built right near the river and in the last series of floods one of the hospitals had to be evacuated can you remember that or i don't remember the exact hospital but i think this is infrastructure that we need to protect yes i think i think uh i think there may be a hospital in coffs harbour that's also Mm. similarly precariously situated in terms of flooding so they this is this you're that example that you gave really uh, explains why climate change impacts have to go right throughout, the consideration of them has to go right throughout our government planning systems yeah. and and healthcare systems from the very beginning, even in terms of where you put the hospital yeah. uh, and then how you um, proof it for the most likely events that, that may occur in that area. In the Lancet report, um, one of the writers, Professor Anthony Costello, said tackling climate change represents one of the greatest opportunities to benefit human health for generations to come. And this was widely reported in the media, that phrase, you know, tackling this will bring opportunities. Could we break that down into areas that people know about? For example, smog. We've heard about the Chinese cutting back because of the smog. It's really terrible for them. So how how is this an opportunity? Well, this is where it gets really exciting, of course. Uh, air pollution uh, is a big killer. Uh, WHO estimates it kills 7, 7 million people per anima worldwide. And in Australia, it kills more people than our national road toll, in fact. So, uh, and the, the biggest contributor to air pollution is the burning of fossil fuels, both vehicle emissions and also mm. the combustion of um, coal for energy. So... So if you start winding back your fossil fuel use, you're going to have an immediate health benefit through cleaner air. Mm. For example, just winding back coal combustion for uh, electricity reduces four out of the top five causes of death in the Western world. You know, for example, heart disease, cancer, respiratory disease, asthma and strokes. So right there, you've got a massive co-benefit between climate action and improving public health. And in the West, we're currently experiencing an epidemic of non-communicable diseases, as you know, the so-called lifestyle diseases. Well, it's an amazing fact that the high-carbon lifestyle is the lifestyle that produces these diseases, and a low-carbon lifestyle is the lifestyle that will both reduce, obviously, carbon emissions, but improve all the, the basics for a healthy metabolism, 
you know, an active lifestyle and, and a healthy life mm. for people. So what are the lifestyle diseases you're thinking of? Diabetes, um, obesity, the metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, mental illness. All of these are improved by a low-carbon lifestyle, and by that I mean not taking your car anywhere, um, having a diet that's much richer in uh, vegetables than in meat and dairy mm. products, um, you know, choosing to get about actively and and getting involved in one's community as well is another aspect of a low-carbon lifestyle. And so there are so many things that people can do that are an instant win-win, really. Peter, would you like to say something about that, about... Um the opportunity, you know, the, this is an opportunity for the medical sphere. I think it's interesting to, to, to uh, consider why they chose that phrase about it's a great opportunity. The, the Lancet produced a similar report, an earlier report, a few years ago, and it's been widely quoted ever since because it, uh, it said that climate change was the greatest threat to public health of the 21st century. Sorry, yeah, 21st century. Um, so I think with this second report, in the time that's elapsed, we've come to recognise that action on climate change, action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and limit climate change, isn't just good for this sort of vague thing called the environment, um, but it's also, as Helen was just saying, it can be good for human health and she illustrated that, but it can also be good for the economy in many ways as well. There are many jobs um, to be uh, created out of um, clean energy, and there are other ways in which it will be beneficial for for the economy. And I think we can see it contributing to more resilient communities as well. In fact, it it is important to recognise that tackling climate change isn't something that can be done on its own. We do live in a very globalised world where everything's interconnected and it's well recognised that if we're going to tackle climate change we also have to be tackling poverty and inequalities and uh, people who are working in terrible working conditions that these all go together in the, in the way we've constructed our economy and our societies globally these days. And that's why um, there is a really clear connection between the Lancet report and the COP meeting in December and also the, the, the regeneration of, uh, into the sustainable development goals that are taking over from the millennial de- development goals. So I think we need to see it in that total context. It isn't just about cleaning up the air and saving polar bears and, mm. and, you know, well, we won't lose another rare lily somewhere out in the bush. It's really about the, the whole way we organise our society these days. And I think what The Lancet has demonstrated, drawing on the, the research and evidence of the last few years, is that this is a threat to public health climate change, but if we take action on it, it can actually create a much better world And I think that's a very positive message. But to achieve that, again, just to pick up on something Helen touched on, we we need to start planning that. We can't put it off any longer. This isn't something that we can suddenly say, oh, this has got drastic, we'd better do something about it now and reverse it. Mm -hmm. Because if we do that in 20 or 30 years, the time lag in all these processes will mean it's too late. We have to do that now. For instance, if we take the example of the Hunter Valley and the coal mining up there, it's absolutely inevitable that coal mining is going to stop over the next one or two or three decades. So what local government, state government, national government should be doing is working together to develop transition plans for the economy of the Hunter Valley. Mm. That's just one example. Um, But people could be healthier, uh, they could be using sustainable industries, the farming industry, the horse breeding industry, the wine industry, Mm. tourism, which would all be much, much healthier. So I think there are tremendous opportunities here, and it needn't cost money. In fact, all the reports that have been done looking into all of this demonstrate that this will not destroy the economy. This can all be achieved over the next 10, 20, 30 years along the same trajectory of economic growth that we've seen. Thank you. Hey, are you curious? Do you want to see how a busy radio station works? Do you want to know how over 300 broadcasters come together to produce radio 24-7? Are you interested in seeing the inside of a radio studio? 
Or do you want to find out more about 3CR's unique radio philosophy? Let me take you on a station tour. For $90, 3CR offers one-hour radio station tour for groups at a time that suits you. Radio. So if you're part of a community organization, student group, or institution, give 3CR a call on 94198377. For more information about radio station tours at 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au and click on Station Tours. Peter, um, let's continue with the idea of this integration of medical advice with decision makers. Mm. And in New South Wales, we've just had a very positive change in the criteria for assessing new minds. It's only in draft form at the moment, but I hope you know, that this will actually change uh, the fortunes of the people of Bulga, for example, who listeners will know. The planners now have to take into account the health, the environmental and the social well-being around any project. So, and I know you've t- spoken to us before about the effects on people in coal region, particulate matter and so on, and they can't just consider jobs and profits as preeminent. I would like government planners to mandatorily receive advice from local nurses, for example, regarding new coal mines. But then I think also the climate impact on health would need to be sketched in by health professionals like yourself with a more global view, you know, the the climate impact, not just the local impact. If this was part of their job, who would be training them to be effective communicators and to embolden them to speak up? Because I think it's actually a whole new profession. Well, it's a a new skill, that, I think. And, you know, health professionals are like any other profession. You know, Helen and I are both doctors, but you wouldn't want either of us performing neurosurgery on you. You know, we all have our own specialist skills. And uh, I think it's the same with what you're alluding to here. So, for instance, over the last decade or so, we've become increasingly skilled in New South Wales in conducting these things called health impact assessments, where you can take a development like a proposed new mine or a proposed new uh, complex like Barangaroo in the docks in Sydney or you could take a whole new policy like parental leave policy and you can say well what are likely to be the health implications of this development what are the good aspects of it that are going to promote health and how can we make those even better and what are the bad aspects that are going to damage health how can we eliminate them or reduce them and this is a structured process that involves talking to the community looking at the evidence involving the decision makers in it and in fact some decisions in New South Wales some planning decisions have required health impact assessments to be conducted and there are people colleagues of mine in public health who are very skilled in this and we've been arguing for some time now that health impact assessment should be as equally required as environmental impact assessment when new proposals like an extension of a mine are being proposed. So that can be done. There are people with those skills. But obviously, if we're going to roll it out the way you'd like to see, the way I'd like to see, then we would need not so more people with those skills. I think the Lancet suggests that because um, medical people are kind of trusted messengers, that they should be skilled up to bring out this message. Because you can ask a financier, you can ask an environmentalist, but lots of the public will think, oh, I don't really go for what they say. But most people will trust what a scientific or medically trained person will say. Action to address climate change is going to look different depending on where you are around the world. So it's going to look very different in Sydney compared to out in western New South Wales or a remote indigenous community or uh, some of our Pacific Island friends, uh, Tokyo, Bangladesh, you know, every place is going to have to make uh, adaptations and changes and and, uh, mitigation according to their own local conditions. So, um, but one of the biggest sort of, I think, unifying factors is that Uh, that's coming through in the literature is that we need resilient communities to be able to survive the impacts of of climate change, of severe events, and that we're going to need lots of social capital, something that's actually being eroded in the West, partly because we never get out of our cars, isn't it? Mm. So um, building communities, building um, networks, building not having those isolated people who are elderly and don't actually have any day-to-day contact with any other person so Mm. actually having streets where neighbours know each other where maybe they grow vegetables together you know or have a community renewable energy project in their street 
you know, getting people, uh, getting um, the built environment to be more friendly to people coming out of their houses, going into shared community spaces, having more green mm. space. You know, there's this thing called nature deficit disorder, which is which affects people in in highly urbanised environments where mm. they actually have mental health disturbance because they have no exposure to to trees, to green space, and. You know, one of the things you can do to improve a city's resilience to to heatwave events is to have more green space, is to have trees and parks and things and people places where people can go, and so you have a win-win there straight away. And uh, you know, and obviously in rural areas, there's going to be a focus, and in sort of very remote areas, there might be a focus on adequate shelter and housing during mm. the heat waves and that sort of thing. So it's going to be different everywhere. But there's, I mean, as soon as you start looking, there's opportunities. And I really agree with what the Lancet's saying there, that there's massive opportunities to improve the sustainability and quality of the way we live our lives. And not in that sort of highly automized affluent way either it's not about how much stuff we have it's not about material possessions it's about those other intangible things such as social capital such as um, the quality of our relationships with each yeah. other and our quali- the quality of our, our relationship with nature. I can think of something uh, like that uh, as someone I interviewed about co-housing they, I think they're about 20 people in a you know purpose-built place and they had big lit communal living areas and they each had an apartment but one of the women there had had a heart attack and she had a 13 year old son and he came down and just immediately got the neighbors because he knew the neighbors and they got her to hospital and saved her life and she she said from that moment on she realized this was her home because they'd only recently arrived but she realized she wouldn't have got that degree of response or care in a normal apartment building so I think that's resilience what what about for you Peter? Well picking up on some of the things Helen was saying there I mean another example of where we can create a better element of life in cities is you know the car and petrol allowed this thing we call urban sprawl which was terrible in many ways for destroying uh, 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 rural land around cities with fragmented families because they became so far apart isolated people if if only one there was only one car in the family and somebody was left at home all day and people had these immense commutes to and from work i think if we create more compact cities where living working recreation are much closer together then we can reduce travel times we if we improve public transport we can reduce cars on the road so it's much more uh, accessible for everyone people don't spend an hour commuting to and from work every day they've got more time for the family for the community and so on I don't know if you're aware but there's a project that started worldwide called 100 resilient cities it's been it's being funded by the Rockefeller Foundation in New York and uh, Melbourne was in the first wave of cities recruited to this and Sydney's just joined the second wave of cities and this is about uh, recognising the differences that Helen was talking about between, ci- between different environments, but even just within cities, that cities around the world are very, very different. But nonetheless, that they have to tackle all these issues of health and energy and transport and housing and employment, and they have to be resilient to the, to the shocks that are going to come from the climate at times, uh, from changes in the economic system, like a fall in the stock market, from changes to threats to health and so on. And it's about creating cities that are resilient to these shocks, but also the the day-to-day stresses of city life and and city communities. And I think this is a really interesting example of people recognising this this need to work together to move out of our silos. Mm. Do you think the hospital and the doctor and the medical centre, the baby health centre, all of that, do you think they are kind of hub around which this new sort of knowledge to, you know, enhance people's commitment to each other and enhance the life that we do have because we can't redesign the whole city and, you know, it's not a... We haven't got time. Climate change is really pressing. We just need to perhaps make people um, connect more or enable them. But do you think that um, in your profession, those places where you work are likely to be a source of this information spreading out? Definitely. Um, I, I think so. I mean, I think a source of information is correct. 
And hospitals are great places where little projects get, get up and going. For example, I, jo- I joined a ride to work program years ago. I was, ri- I was driving my car every day to work, including right out to southwest Sydney. It was 20 kilo- 28 <laughs> kilometres each way, including down the M4, which anybody in Sydney will know it's a horrible road, uh-huh. especially now they've taken the toll off it and everybody's uh-huh. on it. So I thought, oh, ride to work, what a great idea. And so I signed up and I thought, okay, how do I ride to work? Uh-huh. I'd never done it. And I thought, okay, let's get on the net. Now, maybe part of it can be on a train and so I did it actually road to work on ride to work day and and I discovered that actually going to Fairfield Hospital from Ashfield on public transport wasn't an impossibility and I actually really enjoyed the process (laughs) until I got really into very bad trouble by the security guards for taking my bike in through the front doors now that was an exciting day but yeah so but so progressively since then I've actually and that's because of this little hospital email that came round ra- saying ride to work you know and I think Liverpool Hospital now has got um, programs like that it's because mm. of that that I even thought of it and they started to do it and now you know if I'm having a bad mental health day I know okay I have to leave the car at home right I've got to get on my bike yeah. get on the train you know walk a bit get some sun and makes a whole difference to my day so so those messages, they're very simple. They're very, very simple. But um, all, you know, all those settings that you mentioned are key places to disseminate those messages. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with that. And particularly in country towns, of course, hospitals and health centres are very much uh, a crucial part of the, the, the local community. I would also like to emphasise that I think there's a tremendous opportunity and responsibility here for local government. I think... Uh, you know, they are the, the, the level of government, the arm of the bureaucracy that's really closely in touch with the people in so many ways. Mm. And I, I really think there's a great opportunity here for them to become active in creating the conditions locally, in mobilising their communities, in listening to their communities and helping to develop this sort of low-carbon economy at the grassroots level. Because, yeah, we need these international agreements, but we need people to be doing things themselves as well. You were mentioning hospitals, and I think um, a lot of people, as we were talking before, are not naturally activists. They're not going to ever really take on uh, shirt front Tony Abbott, for example, or ring up even their local MP, but they might like to improve something at their workplace. And I read in The Lancet about the carbon footprint of health facilities, and apparently in England, the national health system accounts for 25% of public sector emissions. I can hardly imagine that, but that's what it said there. And one case study um, I also read about was the Mata Hospital System here in Australia, and they cut down their emissions from the vehicle fleet. I don't... They cut out quite a few vehicles but they they downsized the 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 types of vehicles they investigated electric vehicles but they couldn't get electric vehicle type ambulances yet they're not being built but you know perhaps they'll pressure for that but happily for them they found they had a half a million dollar decrease in their expenses just for that part of their work and I think greening the hospital system would make a shining example because it is such a prominent part of of our life and we saw the the hospital greening itself in this way. I don't know if greening is the right word. Do you have other examples where the hospitals are leading in that way? Well, Helen and I, we, just by chance, we work in a, the <laughs> same hospital and we are trying to make that health, that hospital and that health service more uh, aware of their, their environmental footprint. But you're dead right. In the United Kingdom, um, that 25% of public sector uh, emissions actually translates into about 4 or 5% of total emissions and the similar figures, similar figures, not exactly the same in the USA. So the health service is an immense uh, emitter of greenhouse gases. And yes, transport is quite an important issue, and so is um, heating and cooling and, and lighting of buildings. But what's really interesting is that the biggest part of that footprint is what the hospitals do, what they buy, the treatment they give to patients. That's about 60 to 70% of greenhouse gas emissions is that. How could they lower that? Well, there are different models of care that we could utilise to look at uh, reducing um, our use of disposables so that, um, and reusing th- some things, uh, to be more careful with our use of drugs. Drugs are very carbon intensive. A lot of drugs get wasted, a lot get thrown away. 
But we need to be careful that when we propose changes, that changes that sound as though they might reduce the environmental footprint, if we look at the whole story, we need to make sure they do. I mean, it seems common sense that if we stop uh, bringing everyone to outpatients, that'll reduce the travel load. But some studies have demonstrated that that may happen, but it may in other ways increase the carbon footprint. So we need to be careful and to actually look at the whole story, the whole life story of, of uh, the treatment of a patient, not just say, oh, if we do this one thing, it's going to make the, the situation better. We do need to look at the whole story or else we might make changes that we regret. Mm. And so on. Um, the hospitals have been completely disabled in some cases. Mm. A, the hospitals have been disabled, and B, the staff yes. couldn't get to them. Right. But because we've traditionally put things like emergency departments and power plants on ground level, but in the redeveloping hospitals in the cities like New Orleans and so on, they're actually putting essential services on the first floor, which is quite a novel approach to hospitals. So instead of mm. walking into the emergency department off the street, you'll actually have to go up a ramp or in a lift or yeah. whatever, so that they're protected from flooding. It's quite interesting. I'd never have thought of putting those services on the first floor. Well, speaking of emergency services, Helen, on TV I saw uh, a doctor, a woman doctor, and she was absolutely just t dealing with someone. She just looked over her shoulder and the TV camera was there. And they said, how are you dealing with this heat wave? It was in Pakistan and um, they'd been getting just, you know, truckloads of people coming and expiring with the heat. And many died. And she said, oh, look, we normally have about 1,500 people a day here in this emergency department, and now we're dealing with over 2,000. And she was obviously very stressed, and I thought, well, they are dealing with it. And she also said they, their morgue was filled and they had to use refrigerated trucks out the back. And so I think multiply this, take this to scale around the world. You know, all at once, heat waves in several countries, no one can help each other because they're all just dealing with their own emergency. How are health leaders speaking to governments um, in terms of adapting to this future and preparing populations so that they won't die and they, you know, presumably they'll be, you can predict a heat wave usually, they will, a lot of them will be um, carried through it. I would like to know how this is an opportunity. Um, I think if you try hard enough, you can make everything an opportunity. Um, so, and it is really actually debatable whether heat waves are an, are an opportunity, and they're more of an effect of climate change that we have to prepare for because they're already happening. Mm. And of course, in Victoria, during those terrible bushfires that killed like 170 people, more than double that number of um, people died in Melbourne from the heat wave over that 10-day period. So. Um, that heat is a killer. It's called the silent killer. It triggers um, un other underlying disease such as um, heart attacks and respiratory distress as well as um, causing people direct um, harm through dehydration and heat stroke. Um, and really if you think but you've got to think about it even as a bigger um, picture than that. For a start, it's an opportunity because it focuses people's minds on the problem. When people are hot, when there's a lot of hot weather and drought, mm. public opinion about need for action on climate change increases. When we have a sort of a cooler, wetter period, people go, "Oh, everything mm. seems okay." Mm. We're such we're such animals in that way. Mm. We we you know we tend to sort of go, "Oh, everything seems mm. fine now," and we stop using our, our forward-thinking brains. Um, but adapting to increased emergency department um, admissions on those days, ambulance services, public education campaigns such as there have already been um, in Victoria, that's, that's one sort of aspect. It's almost like treating the symptom of the disease, but the underlying disease is the warming itself, and that's where we also need to focus our energy. Okay. Well, the very few times that I have been in an emergency department, I have noticed that everyone knows what to do. And the doors open and a dramatically injured or ill person comes through and the team goes into action. They're working fast, but I notice they all speak quite calmly. <laughs> At the moment, I feel we need that sort of teamwork in government. But what we see is politicians here and internationally haggling over targets and 
you know, trying to keep warming below two degrees centigrade when we know full well that we're on a path to an unbelievable four degrees, unlivable four degrees or more. And they are speaking fast and they are acting slow. And I don't see the teamwork, you know, the oppositional politics, democracy in action have to have two sides to the argument rather than that teamwork that we see in the analogy of the emergency department. So the Lancet said we must ensure that health and climate considerations are thoroughly integrated into government response. Um, They said a siloed response will not work. So I don't really know what a siloed response really means and I'd like to know that when our political leaders do wake up and that do need an emergency response, the people like yourselves will have it ready. They will know. Here's the program. Get with it. This is what the team has to do to decarbonise rapidly. How will medical people go into top gear? Well, I think we're preparing for that now because I think it's inevitable that our um, very um, sort of high-conflict politics over this particular issue will um, inevitably give way to a bipartisan consensus and a sort of rolling up of the sleeves and readiness to act on it in a bipartisan way, such as is already happening in the UK and um, and in Europe uh, and other places as well. So a siloed approach, I suppose, means that there's, an, there's a lack of integration between different parts of government, different levels of government addressing the issue. Uh, and and the the whole framing of this as a, as an emergency, which is very much a health sort mm. of um, cognitive frame, if yeah. you like, um, is is to try to mobilise the health professions um, and to mobilise them on, to become activists in a in a more general sense. Um, and we've in DEA we've been trying to do this. I've been calling climate change a public health emergency for at least a couple of years, um, and this is echo- echoed now, of course, by the Lancet, by the British Medical Association. By there's quite a big mobilisation of health organisations in the UK who are getting very very uh, vocal about it, um, and I think this is. Uh, this is going to start happening here. I know that um, we we spend quite a, as as much time um, DA spends lobbying our medical colleagues and our fellow medical organisations as we do actual politicians because we know we need a stronger health voice. We need a very strong medical voice um, to make this happen. Hey, are you curious? Do you want to see how a busy radio station works? Do you want to know how over 300 broadcasters come together to produce radio 24-7? Are you interested in seeing the inside of a radio studio? Or do you want to find out more about 3CR's unique radio philosophy? Let me take you on a station tour. For $90, 3CR offers one-hour radio station tour for groups at a time that suits you. Radio. So if you're part of a community organization, student group, or institution, give 3CR a call on 94198377. For more information about radio station tours at 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au and click on Station Tours. Hello. Yes, I was um, just picking up on the pharmaceutical um, part of it. I work a lot in aged care and um, I was very interested to, to read that about the pharmaceutical industry and just how big their carbon footprint actually is. And um, in aged care, there's this phenomenon called polypharmacy, which is any more than six tablets that a person is sort of taking continuously. And you get drug interactions and you get ill health. You actually get doctor-induced admissions <laughs> to hospital because people are on too many tablets and they don't need them all. So they go to the cardiologist, get three tablets, they mm. go to the GP, they go to a different specialist and the tablets all build up and people don't review them enough. So so you can there's another win-win is we can reduce polypharmacy for our older population, we can be really rational with our drugs and we can also talk to the pharmaceutical industry about disposable because there's a lot of chemical pollution that gets into our into our waterways and into mm. our water supply trace trace amounts of various drugs are found 
and uh, uh, and the you know if we if we use less at the at the initial part then we're going to have a benefit overall in fact we can reduce packaging i've got an interesting story personally i take some anti-inflammatories for arthritis and i got a new prescription of them a couple of months ago and it was a different drug you know the same drug but different uh, manufacturer and i thought crikey that looks really different to my old packet because it was much bigger and bulkier and it was wrapped differently. So I actually weighed the two <laughs> packets, of the, the 30 tablets, each with the same drug, exactly the same drug, exactly the same dose, and one packet of 30 weighed 14 grams, and the other packet of 30 weighed 34 grams. It was two and a half times more material <laughs> in the packaging of one preparation than the other. Yeah. Well, could I just now, we have taken so much of your time, but I, I just have, I'd like to take it on to the global level again. We've talked about what we can do in this rich country. And if we just motivated ourselves and got out of our cars and did this, I, I would love to see us leading in this. Hard to see us leading at the moment, but I think perhaps in your profession there are some, is some leadership on that. But I've recently been in East Timor and I went to a very poor little clinic and they see about 300 people every day. It's just, it seems like a GP clinic. They don't do operations there or anything. But I spoke to Dr. Dan Murphy, who's a legendary doctor there. He was there under the Indonesian occupation. And he said, I just asked him straight up, what, what um, climate action would you be taking? He said, I would get rid of the wood smoke. The women, people here have TB, have the high incidence of TB. And women from very young age are breathing in this smoke from their wood fires cooking. And, uh, and, that, and, that, and that also creates carbon um, uh, climate change, doesn't it? Because the, the soot from those fires ends up around the world. The village fires end up mm. creating quite a forcing of climate change. So I immediately started thinking, oh, well, in poor countries, yeah, what about you know, solar ovens? But I, I just haven't seen much um, help on that on the internet. I've looked for examples, but there must be also outreach that we can do in that way that would have a health benefit, reduce that, that awful breathing in of that smoke and reduce the climate impact. Can you think of some other examples globally or that you've read about? Well, there's a couple of organisations that I'm aware of that are producing uh, solar lamps, solar lights, and uh, they are marketing them in India to villages where they've got no reticulated power and where people are relying exactly what you say on fires and oil lamps that are terrible in terms of the fumes and the carbon uh, emissions and so on. And there's an arrangement where... Um, they don't just sell them in India, but they set up local organisations that are self-sustaining yeah. to distribute them. Um, and they, they do it in such a way that the families who are often quite poor can pay for them over a period of time so that they can slowly pay it off. And the advantage of this is they get these solar lights. It allows children to be able to read at night so they can do the schoolwork. Um, they're not being exposed to the fumes. It's renewable, very low, uh, low uh, technology in many ways. Um, and that's a great example of uh, where we can really make a change to people's lives in places where they are currently completely off the power system. The other aspect of that is actually decentralised power mm. systems for whole villages. Sure. And, for example, in Ethiopia, in Africa, only 30% of people have access to a power grid and electricity. And this is a, a wonderful opportunity with the right support from and the right finance uh, for these countries is to actually leapfrog those communities straight into straight from, you know, wood-fired burning or whatever else they're doing um, into renewable energy and having systems set up that supply the whole village. I saw a, a picture of, of one such system that was providing uh, beautiful shade over the central community area and there were sort of young people there charging their, their smartphones, would you believe it, <laughs> sitting there in the dust uh, near the, un underneath the solar panels. So this is um, a really exciting way that we can help these countries, give them access to technology, to power, and if we do it in a way that allows them to, con to keep control over, over, their, over their community, over their access to energy, 
then we've just done them such a huge favour. And also we've saved on all the, the building of infrastructure. To build an electrical grid is an extremely mm. expensive process. So this, to me, uh, solar pa- panels with some storage seems to be a wonderful solution. What would be the advantage medically if you allowed people to have a small fridge? If that solar panel would just give a small fridge, what would that do for community health in the countries, like we mentioned before, where things are really breaking down? Stop food spoilage, allow storage of food and reduce sort of the incidence of acute gastrointestinal illness due to uh, food poisoning, basically. And those illnesses can be devastating and do kill many children Mm. in situations like that. So, yeah, it's a simple thing. Okay, so just to finish, just imagine you're speaking to your colleagues, but um, not the people who are part of your organisation already, but people who haven't really heard about this and aren't really thinking about climate change and they're busy with all the other things they have to do in their life, which I feel sorry for people who, you know, really are very busy and and we're expecting them to take on this extra thing. But as The Lancet said, the trusted messenger, medical people are the trusted messenger. So what would you say to people in the places where you work, for example, how to get on board and how they could in some way in their clinics or in the baby health sister or all of the all the people who paramedics who whoever they are that they should take this message a bit further well i think the first thing to remember is that whilst a lot of people aren't very active the vast majority of even the australian population these days do accept the evidence that climate change is occurring and accept the evidence that it's principally caused by human activity and accept that we need to do something about it so i don't think we should be too pessimistic about that people are in some ways looking for guidance and looking for the opportunity to take personal action so i think you can build on that and i think we have to find the champions they may not want to be out there doing radio interviews but they're very happy to uh, really get active with their colleagues and look at ways in which they can reduce waste in their uh, operating theater or ward or whatever the way they can separate the the waste that they do produce into the different sorts of recyclables the way they can perhaps uh, speak to the um, the drug companies about changing the way, as Helen says, they package and even take back drugs and so on, which is a, a system that they've developed, uh, one drug company in particular has developed in the United Kingdom. So I think we can build on that enthusiasm that some individuals have, um, and it's a bit like the uh, Clean Up Australia campaign. You know, you can build on that sort of thing. It's not as though you're, you're pushing against this immense resistance that people don't believe it. People do believe the evidence. We just need to demonstrate that nationally that we're taking it seriously and that's what's lacking at the moment because that in itself would be a great mobiliser for individuals to take action at home and at work. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think sometimes those conversations can be quite intimidating. I find them so. I think in the years, you know, where there's just been such a lull in action since 2009 and with a sort of Australia's kind of woeful performance more recently... It's, um, it's been at times very hard to start conversations like mm. that and I've found that the easiest way is really just to tell people how I got to work that day yeah. or what I did on the weekend or, you know, and what I do with my voluntary work and I just drop it into the conversation because it's difficult. It's It sort of almost became a bit of a taboo subject to talk about climate change and people sort of stiffen and they wonder what you're going to say next and also it's really important that people don't... Um, you can easily put people in a situation where they feel judged or they feel, I don't know, that you, you, it's, very, it's very easy to in, uh, trigger negative emotions in a person when you're talking about this stuff. So I, I probably should do it more than I do, but you have to be just opportunistic, I think, with the conversations that you have. And I find the easiest thing is to talk about what I do and to assume the person is across and accepts climate change and that we need to do things in a very different way. And I've had some really good responses Mm. to that approach. So that's a wonderful contribution from Dr Helen Redmond and Professor Peter Sainsbury. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.